Hey everyone, welcome to episode 2. Today we're going back to the 90s to take a look at a small B-movie that, thanks to some good timing, ended up with an all-star cast and its own place in the annals of cult moviedom. I'm talking, of course, about the 1996 invasion of Mars Attacks. But, before we get into it, let's crack a beer. Spoilers ahead, this is the Movie Brewer Podcast. Okay, here we go. I have in front of me Ransack the Universe, an IPA by Collective Arts Brewing. Uh, Collective Arts is located in Hamilton, Ontario, in Canada. Uh, it was founded in 2013 by Bob Russell and Matt Johnston, and they're known for being very supportive of the arts community. All of their labeling comes from independent artists. Uh, each of their beers tends to have four different iterations of the can, and... You know, their their mission statement really is that creativity fosters creativity and in turn creativity yields delicious pints. Uh, it's all about existing in a collective arts community with them. And so uh, that's collective arts brewing in a, in a nutshell. Uh, the Ransack, the universe I have in front of me here uh, is, as I said, a Western IPA. Uh, the hops in it are Galaxy and Mosaic hops. Uh, Galaxy hops are from Myrtleford, Victoria in Australia. Uh, very well not so much anymore but pretty rare for a long time there and the mosaic hops are from yakima washington in the u.s so we're kind of getting a uh, representation from both hemispheres as it were a hemispheric hop mashup as they say so i'm gonna go ahead and crack this open here real quick um it says best enjoyed in a tool class so that's what i've got in front of me and here we go all right, <clears throat> so I got this here in front of me. Uh, the first thing off the bat is the aroma is absolutely stunning. It's not overpowering at all, but you can definitely get really fruity hints, really uh, really potent aroma. The The look of it, it's got a decent size head on it. Um, it's pretty cloudy. Uh, it's got a decent amount of haze to it, but it's a nice solid amber color. Um, and then in terms of taste, let's let's see. It's very nice. Uh, you, that that fruit that you can smell in the aroma definitely comes through, um, but with that added bitterness from the IPA, its its overall feel uh, as as you drink through it is pretty potent. But overall, it's it's pretty solid. Um, yeah, uh, I chose this beer. I think it's kind of obvious. Ransack the universe. We're talking about Mars attacks. The segue kind of writes itself here. But yeah, overall, this is going to be a good one to sort of sip as we talk about Mars Attacks. So, here we go. Beer in hand, let's talk about this movie. Uh, if you haven't seen Mars Attacks, I'm going to give you a brief synopsis, but as I said at the top, spoilers ahead. So if you haven't seen it, um, go for it, take a look, and come back. We'll wait here. No, but uh, so... Basic synopsis, alien visitors from Mars uh, set the U.S. and the world on edge as they show up out of the blue in full force. Uh, initial peace attempts prove frivolous and soon lead to an all-out war. People all over the U.S. from Washington to Vegas fight for their lives until at last an effective weapon is found to fight back. That effective weapon, of course, being Indian Love Call by Sam Whitman, 
the yodeling country singer. So that's a very, very brief overview. But I want to talk a little bit about the history here. Mars Attacks is based on a Topps bubblegum trading card series from the 1960s. It was originally titled Attack from Space, but was shortly renamed to Mars Attacks as the cards depicted various scenes of alien invasion, some of which uh, were far too violent and sexualized for their time. Public outrage quickly caused the cards themselves to be canceled, the series itself to be discontinued. However, if you fast forward to the mid-90s, these scenes are much more acceptable. Uh, many of them actually appear in Mars Attacks. The opening scene with the herd of cattle on fire running down the highway is lifted straight from the card game, as is the generic design of the aliens themselves. But I'll, I'll get more into that in a little while. The movie itself was made in 1996, the peak of director Tim Burton's first wave of popularity. It would be his seventh feature film. The ones before that were a string of films that are still wildly recognizable today. We're talking about Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman, Batman Returns, Edward Scissorhands, uh, and most recently, Ed Wood, uh, again, which I'll come back to in a moment. None of these movies that he'd done could be considered a flop by any measure, really. And most of them were incredibly well received. And 1996 or 1995, thereabouts, was when Tim Burton was the hot new thing in Hollywood. And, you know, I think that has a lot to do with what makes Mars Attacks so great. And again, I'll get into that in a moment. But as is the case with so many Hollywood films, the script for Mars Attacks uh, ran through many iterations. An adaptation was originally explored in the mid-80s by director Alex Cox, whom you may or may not know from the film Repo Man, um, which is a personal favorite of mine, or Sid and Nancy. His script and production really went nowhere, uh, and the project fell apart until it was picked up again in 1993 by a screenwriter named Jonathan Gems. Now, Jonathan Gems is a name that we're going to come back to time and time again as he time and time again came back to this project. Gems was a frequent collaborator with Burton uh, and pitched him a couple of scripts, both Mars Attacks and Dinosaurs Attack. Dinosaurs Attack was another trading card series put out by Topps in the 80s, a uh, nostalgic throwback to the original Alien series redone with uh, Dinosaurs. This is where we really start to see the fickle aspect of timing in Hollywood come into play. Uh, so often the movies we love happen because of the endless series of stars that align just right to make it happen. Burton had a positive response to both ideas when Gems pitched them to him in 1994, uh, but there were a couple outside influences to consider. Uh, for one, Jurassic Park had just come out the previous summer, and dinosaurs were on everyone's mind. General moviegoers would likely shrug at another dinosaur movie. Uh, but more importantly, Tim Burton was in post-production on his film Ed Wood quick background. Ed Wood the Man was a director from the 1950s known for his campy, odd B-movies. A good portion of the Burton film deals with the filming of Plan 9 from Outer Space, uh, still considered by many to be the worst film ever made. Now, Burton is a known fan of campy sci-fi B-movies, but his love is no doubt elevated after spending so much time working with the genre. Uh, he was perfectly positioned for a film that paid homage to those films of the 50s. 
But let's go back to the script. So Burton started pursuing Mars Attacks, uh, but as the film was being set up for production at Warner Brothers, Gems was doing additional rewrites of the script. But time and time again, they came in in a scope that was far too large for what the studio was really looking to spend. The original script had 60 main characters. It had massive destruction pieces, various things. And the thing to keep in mind, and I want to put this seed in everyone's mind, this was pre-Independence Day. That scope of Hollywood blockbuster was not really known. So it was very unlikely that a studio was going to sign off on this kind of script. So Gems did a handful of versions of the script and wasn't really syncing with what the studios were looking for. Uh, and eventually the two writers from Ed Wood who had worked with Burton before were brought in to work on the script and bring it down to the $60 million budget the studio wanted to spend on it. Scott Alexander and Larry Karashensky took a big swing, but eventually Gems was brought back to the project. The scope of the film was severely cut. The 60 main characters was brought down to 23. The locations were limited to Washington, D.C., Las Vegas, and rural Arizona. And in that, they found the scope they were really looking for. It's worth noting that Gems also penned the novelization of Mars Attacks, uh, which I personally find hilarious, and dedicated it to Burton, whom he said quote, co-wrote the screenplay and didn't ask for a credit. So all this back and forth with Gems and Alexander and Karashensky, Tim Burton is an active player in this whole writing scheme too. So just to keep in mind. But yeah, so after that editing down, they had a script they thought was workable and they moved on to the next exciting thing, which to this day blows my mind. Uh, and that is casting. The cast in this movie is absolutely out of control. It is chock full of actors who were famous at the time and actors who have become famous since. Let me run through a list real quick because it's too much to talk about all of them. Uh, but don't worry, I'm, I'm definitely going to talk about some of them. Uh, so first off, we have Jack Nicholson as President James Dale and in a second role as Art Land, the Las Vegas real estate developer. Uh, we have Glenn Close as the First Lady, Annette Bedding as Barbara Land, uh, Pierce Brosnan, Danny DeVito, Martin Short, Sarah Jessica Parker, Michael J. Fox, Rod Steiger, uh, Lucas Haas, Natalie Portman, Jim Brown, Sylvia Sidney, and Tom Jones, as well as Jack Black, uh, Christina Applegate, and amazingly, and I didn't know this until I rewatched the movie, uh, Ray J as Cedric Williams. Um, yeah. So Tim Burton is well known to this day for working repeatedly with the actors he knows and trusts. He casts Johnny Depp in pretty much every movie he does. It's odd uh, that Johnny Depp's not in this movie considering it's made by Tim Burton, though he was considered for the role that eventually went to Michael J. Fox. But uh, I want to give a special shout out to the casting directors of this film, Matthew Barry, Jeanne McCarthy, and Victoria Thomas. Uh, if you have a moment, check out their IMDb profiles. Victoria Thomas had worked with Burton before on Edward Scissorhands and Ed Wood, uh, but this was the beginning of Barry and McCarthy's illustrious careers, and they have since become staples in the casting industry in their own right. So with all this talent at his call, it's no wonder that this cast reads the way it does. So I want to talk first about Jack Nicholson, uh, arguably the main character of the whole film, if you don't count the Martians. Jack Nicholson to this day is a force unto himself in Hollywood. Uh, by this point, he was well established with films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Chinatown, The Shining. He'd also played the Joker in Burton's original Batman, a role 
he's on record calling his favorite ever. The popular story goes that when Burton approached him to play a role in Mars Attacks, he was quick to respond, I'll play every role. Obviously not so feasible, but that is the reason really that he shows up uh, in the two roles of President Dale and Art Land. Uh, There's also a rumor I've heard that I was unable to confirm that Warner Brothers was uncomfortable with the idea of a huge star like Nicholson being killed off in one of their movies. And Burton, upon hearing that, decided to kill him off twice. Uh, Again, I don't know if that happened, but I sure hope it's true. It would be very on brand for Tim Burton. It's not just the roles that Nicholson is playing that are killed off in this movie. Uh, Pretty much every main character, save for a couple, ends up either dead or severely disfigured, uh, or both. So locking in Jack Nicholson was a huge boon for this film. It gave other A-list actors coverage to come in and play one of these roles without worrying about what it would do to their stardom. Uh, It was safe ground. There were the usual back and forths with the casting in this movie, particularly with Glenn Close in the role of the First Lady. But I'd like to focus more for a moment on where the various actors in this film were in their careers when they were cast. Take a moment to remember the absurdity of this film. The role that brings the most attention to the draw of a Tim Burton film for me is Pierce Brosnan. Mars Attacks was the first film he did after taking on the mantle of James Bond from Timothy Dalton. GoldenEye opened at number one in the box office and was the number four movie of 1995. And here he was playing a scientist who has his head chopped off in an alien spacecraft. It's boggling that he would sign up for something like this when he was on such a meteoric rise to the top. But again, that shows you the power of Nicholson and Burton and the draw of their collaboration. You also have Annette Bening, uh, fresh from her stardom in 1995 as the American president, playing a relatively minor role as a hippie alcoholic trophy wife. And then you have Michael J. Fox, Mr. Marty McFly himself, showing up as a hard-hitting reporter Jason Stone in what would be, as of this recording, his last live-action feature film. Danny DeVito was another continual collaborator, having played the near-perfect Penguin in Batman Returns. Uh, And the list goes on. You get Natalie Portman pre-Star Wars, Jack Black pre-anything, really, and Christina Applegate in a role that has maybe four lines. The point is, Tim Burton's political capital pulled together this massive cast, which I have to think is one of the reasons that this film continues to be a fan favorite 23 years after its release. The casting of this movie compared to its plot and scope is absurd. But of course, the other reason that this film is still screened across the country is the Martians themselves. The design of these iconic aliens is based off the original trading cards, but the details mirror that classic Burton flair. So Burton originally wanted the aliens to be done with stop-motion animation, uh, a nod to the famous skeleton battle from Jason the Argonauts, uh, but also something he'd had success with in Beetlejuice and The Nightmare Before Christmas. However, doing stop-motion animation uh, exploded the budget. It brought it up to $100 million, and the studio was really reluctant to allow such an investment. One of the co-producers commissioned a test reel of some CG aliens from ILM, uh, uh, Industrial Light and Magic, and... Burton was was persuaded. CG cut the budget by some $30 million, uh, and at long last, the project was given a green light. So while the look of the Martians was locked in, there was still the matter of the sound. 
of the Martians. There's some conflicting reports as to the origins. Burton claims the famous act, act, act sound was an improvisation done by someone during a table read, uh, a vocal placeholder captured on a tape recorder. Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszynski, uh, the writers brought in to pare down Gems' original drafts, uh, maintained the sound was a piece that they inserted into the script. Either way, the vocals match the visuals with striking effectiveness, and that act, act, act sound is something that's wormed its way into pop culture and you know, is wildly recognizable to this day. Uh, while we're talking about the vocals, it's worth noting that Warner Brothers was nervous that such a strange vocal would put off audiences uh, and pushed really, really hard to have Burton include subtitles beneath what they were saying. And while there is subtitle a subtitle line in the theatrical trailer, Burton was insistent that the lines remain unintelligible uh, and the studio backed down. Uh, again, it was Tim Burton at the, the peak of his power. Um, okay. So, principal photography uh, started on February 26th, 1996. Peter Shasitsky was brought in as the cinematographer. Colleen Atwood, uh, another reoccurring collaborator of Burton's uh, and a Hollywood force in her own right, was brought on as the costume designer. Uh, and Wynne Thomas, the production designer, was charged with creating the Doctor Strange Love-esque war room that a good portion of the film actually takes place in. Production lasted for 96 days, wrapping on June 1st, 1996. So let's talk about its reception. Mars Attacks spent five months in post-production. It opened uh, in cinemas on December 13th, 1996. Uh, it was the number two box office opening that weekend, making $9.3 million, falling short of the number one spot behind Jerry Maguire, which, like, yeah, I could see that. And it stayed in theaters for only five weeks, grossing a total of $37.7 million domestically. Uh, not a great run when it really comes down to it. It made another $63 million internationally, all told just over $101 million gross. And with a budget of $80 million and a marketing campaign of an additional $20 million, that left the movie with a $1 million total profit. Yeah, the, even by standards of 1996, that's that's not a great show in the box office. But I do think that most cult films that come out, you know, and find their audiences later in life do do pretty terribly in the box office. You know, it's something that Mars Attacks by no means has a mass appeal. It, it is something that you have to discover and learn to love on your own. Uh, we have to talk about another movie for a moment. Independence Day the blockbuster to end all blockbusters by Roland Emmerich came out on July 4th of 1996. It's funny because the concerns Burton originally had with Dinosaurs Attack uh, and Jurassic Park were kind of also mirrored with the production of Independence Day. You know, they're very similar. Aliens come from space to destroy the planet and do so in a spectacular fashion. And humanity finds a way to fight back. That's It's the same plot line really and it's arguable that independence day stole some of the thunder away from mars attacks you know the, the timing again comes into play where you can't oversaturate this particular market or oversaturate you know movie going audiences with the same idea uh they'll, they'll always be a favorite this is the thing that happens fairly often to this day you get two movies with similar themes that end up having having it out in the box office and there's always a clear winner and a clear loser 
So to come back to Mars Attacks, the movie also didn't do so well with the critics. Uh, there was a lot of praise, but many felt that a lot of the themes and performances missed their mark. I tend to agree with this to a degree. The character stories that we follow seem like they're holding back and making room for other characters that aren't there anymore. Martin Short's seduction of the Martian in disguise is an iconic scene, and Lisa Marie is brilliant in that role. But the scene itself seems like a standalone slice of some larger storyline that isn't really there anymore. It continues the story along, but you can feel the larger script that was. So yeah, I could go on and on about Mars Attacks. There's so much to deconstruct about this movie and pontificate about why it's stood the test of time and has become a cult classic. But for now, let me reel it in. Uh, I'll do my quick fact breakdown. I tend to think of these as the, the snippets of facts to keep in the back of your head for nights when you're out in trivia. So here we go. Uh, Mars Attacks. As I said, it was based on a Topps trading card series from the 1960s, 1962 to be precise. The movie itself was released on December 13th, 1996. The skeletons of those killed by the Martian rays are either red or green because... Burton maintained that this was a Christmas movie. It was the number 39 highest grossing film of 1996. Number one that year was Independence Day. Again, see above. This is the only movie where Jack Nicholson plays a U.S. president. Uh, the destruction of the Las Vegas casino in the film was the actual demolition of the landmark casino, a casino once owned by Howard Hughes on the Strip. And it is the number 16 highest rated film directed by Tim Burton, according to Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, number one is still The Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, his his opus. So that's what I got. I'm going to come back real quick to my Ransack the Universe IPA. It's maintaining a good flavor uh, as it warms up a little bit here as I talk. I will say the overall mouthfeel of it is a little... A little much for me. I'm having kind of a hard time talking here while drinking this. Um, it's making a, it's a very potent IPA, but the aromatics of it uh, are keeping it nice and light for me, uh, and I'm actually really enjoying it. So, so yeah, that's what I got. Uh, thanks for tuning in to episode two. I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about certain beers that I should pair or certain movies you'd love to hear more about. Uh, so feel free to reach out me out to me at the Movie Brewer. You can read my reviews on Letterboxd, and you can read my beer reviews of Ransack the Universe on Beer Advocate. And thanks a lot, and I'll see you next time.